millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Not only on the cinema screens that jokers, clowns are to be found. In 10 Downing Street, the net is closing in on Boris Johnson. Either he gets a deal with the European Union and Britain leaves the EU finally at Halloween, talking about clowns and jokers, on the 31st of this month, or he's in very serious trouble indeed. Serious trouble with the electorate, serious trouble with his own members of parliament, serious trouble with his allies across the Irish Sea, in the Democratic Unionist Party, all kinds of trouble. And they used to say that Labour MPs got into trouble over money and Conservative MPs got into trouble over sex, usually of an unusual variety. But Boris Johnson's now in trouble over money and sex, over his relationship with an American pole dancer, or sometimes called a businesswoman, who was holed up in Shoreditch. She was giving technology lessons of an afternoon to the then mayor of London, Boris Johnson. Technology lessons, that's a new one. Floppy disks, hard disks, RAM rates, and all of that. It was all perfectly innocent, apparently. But what is more difficult to explain is that this pole dancer with no track record of successful business, indeed now a trail of commercial devastation behind her, received £126,000 of taxpayers' money for a technology startup which never actually went anywhere. That's serious. The sex he can live with, the money he might not be able to live with. And if Brexit fails, expect that story to loom very large indeed. And then there's the jokers that destroyed Yugoslavia 20 years ago this week. It's a matter of great importance to me personally. I loved Yugoslavia. What was not to love? It was a multi-ethnic, multinational state brought into being by the partisans of Yugoslavia, who alone liberated themselves from Nazi occupation forces, who tied down throughout the Second World War divisions of Nazi occupation forces with their heroic patriotic resistance, led by the then Marshal Tito, later the president of this multinational, multi-ethnic state. It took a different path from others in the socialist camp, and it was pretty successful too. They even had a wonderful football team. There you go. Now, Yugoslavia 
was destroyed by Tony Blair and by Bill Clinton. I said at the time, along with my friends Jeremy Corbyn and Tony Benn, that no good could come of this war, not just because we hated to see civilians, even the Chinese embassy, even the state television broadcaster being bombed, shelled, destroyed, people being killed, not just because we hated to look at that, but because we argued if they get away with this, ineluctably it will lead to war after war after war after war. And that is precisely what happened. And those fools who went along with the propaganda, some of it actual hoax, that drew them in to the conflict in Yugoslavia would go on to repeat the trick in country after country after country. And they say there's a law of diminishing returns. Well, actually, each intervention grew more disastrous than the last. But the right to protect RTP doctrine developed by Blair in Chicago, developed in tandem with Bill Clinton, is the root of almost every conflict now raging in the world, every significant, globally overreaching conflict that's going on in the world today. It was a disastrous turn of events. I'm old enough to remember when the principle of non-interference in other people's internal affairs was an axiom of international law and indeed enshrined in the United Nations Charter and all of its works. That was all ripped up 20 years ago. And it now feels to me like it's been one long bloody war for 20 years from Yugoslavia onwards. We'll be talking to the great Neil Clark on Skype about that conflict uh, soon enough in the show. We'll be talking about the clowns in Buckingham Palace who are not managing very well the seeping and extremely unattractive picture of Prince Andrew's relationship with the paedophile and uh, malfactor Jeffrey Epstein. We'll be talking to the peerless Whitney Webb who's broken so much of this story and was such a hit here on the mother of all talk shows on the previous occasions that she visited us. And, of course, we'll be talking about the situation in Syria. Now, let me lay my cards on the table. It is astounding to me that liberals, progressives, even people who call themselves socialists in the United States are mighty unhappy about the fact that President Trump has withdrawn his forces from Syria. I thought it was an axiom of progressive people everywhere to end U.S. wars. Well, now it turns out it's the right that wants to end U.S. wars, or at least some of them, and the left that are demanding that the U.S. continue with the wars that they are in. Which is not to say I support the Turkish President Erdogan's invasion of Syria. Not at all. America has no business in Syria, and neither does Erdogan have any business in Syria. Syria is a sovereign country whose borders are legally delineated, which is represented 
at the United Nations. Its territorial integrity must be upheld or every actor breaking it is a criminal. So the Americans were criminals when they were there and the Turkish armed forces are criminals now. Now, of course, Erdogan's army is laying waste, laying waste to civilian people, to civilian infrastructure, killing people on the roads in the parts of Syria that they have invaded. The Kurdish people deserve the sympathy of every right-thinking person. 30 million Kurds in the world and no right of self-determination hardly anywhere at all. But the Syrian Kurds are Syrian. The area in which they live is part of Syria. It cannot be left outside of the control of the Syrian state whose capital is Damascus. And the best thing now, even now, it's long, long past when it should have been done, is for the Syrian Kurds to invite the Syrian government and the Syrian Arab army to enter northeast Syria, where they can defend the whole territory of Syria against the Turkish incursions. The Sunday Times is reporting today something I've been talking about for months. There's a coup again in the Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn is being held hostage by his erstwhile ally, John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor. The coup has reached its apogee in the busting up of Jeremy Corbyn's inner circle, the exile of his chief of staff, Carrie Murphy, out of parliament altogether into the largely still hostile Labour headquarters uh, several hundred yards away. A new OBE put in in her place to control Jeremy Corbyn's office. The Sunday Times is reporting it today as a coup. And a coup it is. Its purpose is to change the Labour Party conference decision to hold a general election now, right after the deadline for leaving the EU, because Tom Watson and Keir Starmer and Emily Thornberry and John McDonnell have changed their minds. Well, actually, their minds were always set on this, but they claim to have changed their minds. Now they don't want a general election. They want another six months before a general election so that they can hold a second rigged referendum to overturn the British people's decision in 2016 to leave the European Union. It's a coup not just against Corbyn. It's a coup against Britain. It's a coup against democracy itself. All of that and much more coming up. Now on Donald Trump, the joker in the White House, I had my say on RT, on him, just a day or two ago. Take a look at this.
Donald Trump is in deep doo-doo, facing again the threat of impeachment from the Democratic Party-controlled House of Representatives. Just when he thought it was safe to get back in the water, having shaken himself free of the hysteria of Russiagate, which was, of course, the Democratic Party's excuse for having lost to the most absurd presidential candidate in American history, he, having gotten clear of Robert Mueller and the deep state pursuit of him over Russiagate, is now embroiled in Ukraine Gate. It turns out that Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, just days after having been cashiered from the American military for offenses including the sniffing of crack cocaine in the twitch of a nostril, was placed on the board of a powerful and important Ukrainian oil and gas company. You may wonder what that company first saw in Hunter Biden. Well, the fact that his father was the vice president of the United States was, of course, entirely coincidental. In an administration which was deeply involved, up to its neck involved, in the coup in Ukraine in the first place. Now, Ukraine's a very beautiful place. Kiev, a very beautiful city. Was he there for the dancing girls? Was he there for the chicken Kiev? Or was he there because his son was on the board of an important oil and gas company, being paid, incidentally, 50,000 US dollars every month? Or was he there because the Obama-Clinton administration was so deeply involved in corruption, political and otherwise, that his presence was of vital, familial importance. Well, that's up to you to make a judgment. I just tell you this, that Ukraine gave more money to the Clinton Foundation than any other country on the earth. That's including Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and all the other big state funders. So what happened? Donald Trump made a phone call to the new president of Ukraine asking him to make sure that investigations took place as to any possible corruption between the previous US administration and elements in Ukraine. Now, maybe I'm missing something, but to me the scandal in that story is that an occupant of the White House may have been involved in financial political corruption with a foreign government. But such is the level of hysteria in US politics. It's Donald Trump's phone call that is now the bane of everyone's grief. My final point is this. All the liberals, all the centrists, even half of the leftists, are praying in aid of this latest witch hunt, secret whistleblowing testimony from the CIA. The very CIA, which for decades was public enemy number one of those same liberal, progressive, centrist, and leftist elements in the United States. Now we're expected to believe 
that the CIA are knights in shining armor when they tried to bring down the presidency of Donald Trump. For the avoidance of doubt, I was not happy that Donald Trump was elected president of the USA. I was just really happy. Patrick Henderson is one of my was. most favorite American journalists, broadcasters, and analysts. He's almost always right about the events that we are discussing. His outfit is called 21st Century Wire. I hope you're already following it and supporting it in every way, as Patrick is amongst those that it's most important to hear from on all things Americana. And I'm glad to say he joins me now. Patrick, welcome back uh, to the mother of all talk shows. Uh, let's start with Donald Trump and Syria, because although the Ukraine gate looked to be opening its jaws ready to uh, bite him, we'll come back to that, it's his decision to do what he said he would do in the course of the election campaign and get America out of endless foreign wars in the Middle East that has got the establishment, the liberals, the media all on his tail now. What's it all about? Well, you have to look back at uh, previous administrations to find out wh where to start looking on this problem. And there's an extraordinary continuity of foreign policy that goes from administration to administration. And Donald Trump, with his latest move, is threatening to upend the Syria project slightly, but not completely. And if you look back at John McCain, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, they helped to build the Free Syrian Army. They helped to build the Syrian opposition to, to militarize them, to send them weapons and support. And uh, right now, that, that job is now uh, changed. So those soldiers have been uh, in, in Turkey for a number of years, have been given safe haven in Turkey over the border. So they're now working for Turkey. So uh, Erdogan has invaded. He's even uh, given a lot of them Turkish citizenship, by he, the way. He has. So that's the vanguard. That's the front line of the Turkish forces. Uh, and they've been rebranded from the FSA, the Free Syrian Army, to the Syrian National Army by the, quote, interim government uh, of the Syri Syrian Liberation Movement uh, based in Turkey now. So that, that was important that uh, the U.S. armed them to hopefully to uh, upend the regime or the government in Damascus. And at the same time, the U.S. was backing the Syrian Democratic Forces. Uh, That's the Kurdish. Kurdish-led, but not completely Kurdish, about 40% Arab militias, but the, led by what, what you would call the YPG or PKK uh, militants. And Which both America and Turkey consider to be terrorist organizations. Officially, yes. Officially, yes. So, so this is uh, the U.S. has partnered with them. The reason they partnered with them, and this is back to the Syria project, because if you look at the oil fields, for instance. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique. And your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people sing you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Not just the Kurdish independent state, which the U.S. is constantly promising, uh, the British and the Americans have promised the, the, the Kurdish, uh, various uh, Kurdish fractions, whether they be Iraqi Kurdistan, which is, which is very different than the Kurds in Syria. Mm. Uh, the, the Kurdish militants in Syria are definitely following Abdullah Öcalan, uh, very much the... The more leftist, red stars, red flags, and so on. Yeah, a communitarian, a libertarian, stroke Marxist, uh, whereas the Barzani Kurdish uh, uh, factions or community is more tribal-based. Tribal, conservative, patriarchal. Uh, the the women in the YPG, for example, play a leading role in the fighting. Yes, and so on. So uh, they have a leftist profile, but they were working with the U.S. Uh, state uh, project, Syria project. Go figure. Uh, they thought that the U.S. would look after them, and they haven't. Surprise, surprise. So who was occupying the oil fields in Syria in 2014? ISIS was. And when ISIS was eventually moved out or, you know, pushed out to the fringes of that part of Syria, then the SDF, with U.S. backing, occupied Syria's own oil fields and gas fields. So think about that. They're under sanctions. They're under embargo. Plus, their own energy supply is being squatted by first ISIS, then handed over to the U.S.-backed SDF. And so Syria then is being strangled economically cannot get fuel, has to buy fuel on the black market, even from Raqqa, uh, coming on tankers to refineries, or having to somehow get it to their ports on the Mediterranean, as we saw with the Iranians. As we saw when the tanker was seized in Gibraltar. So this is, this is the plan, is to c continue to strangle Syria, to create maximum economic pressure, to keep it weak for a possible another uprising in a few years. Well, that explains why the SDF doesn't. Uh, turn to Damascus and say, we are, after all, Syrians. Uh, you are our government. Uh, please bring the actual Syrian army uh, here and join with us in repelling this Turkish invasion. Although Erdogan says if you call it an invasion, he's going to unleash three million refugees on the European Union. This is kind of gangster talk, actually. If you, if you oppose what I'm doing, I'm going to use three million human beings as pawns, open the gates and send them into Europe. Mm -hmm. Some ally, some NATO ally, this. Well, now the, the, the Syrian refugee bargaining chip that Erdogan used to extort money from the European Union. Yeah, he's already been paid for them. Quite a lot. <laughs> so he's now wanting to resettle them in what's called a safe zone, which is a strip of land across uh, the border between Syria and Turkey. But it's not, it's nothing like a safe zone. This is about changing the demographics, uh, basically ethnic cleansing the Kurdish residents there. Forget about the militants or the SDF, residents, ethnically cleansing them, moving them out, changing the demographic, which goes in line with the, uh, the, the, the Erdogan's party, the AKP, are in a process of uh, rolling back the Kemalist secular shape of the Turkish state in a, in a kind of a Sunnification uh, campaign. And they're wanting to extend that into northern Syria. That's going to change uh, the demographics. They're basically annexing the most profitable part of Syria. 
They're, they're doing so for, so for security reasons, supposedly, uh, to eliminate the Kurdish, potential Kurdish terrorist threat. Uh, but there all, this also is not uh, something that the U.S. is completely um, upset about. This is playing slightly into the role of the U.S. by militarizing the Syrian opposition, keeping it alive, creating a kind of a, uh, a bulkhead across the border there, keeping Aleppo under threat. They could possibly join up the FSA, now the Syrian National Army, uh, with Turkish help, join up with al-Qaeda factions in Idlib eventually, and so just keep this war going longer, keep the instability going longer, keep Damascus from reclaiming every inch of its territory, which it said it was going it's to do. It's determined to do. Let's take a call from Alex in Manchester on that subject. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, George. Welcome. Go ahead. What would you like to say? Uh, I just want to point out, maybe taking someone into Syria to fighters like from, uh, from the Kurds, which have been in prison for a while. Yeah, uh, they already, ha they say they've, America said it took some of these ISIS, terror ISIS terrorists out. Turkey uh, says that some of them are now under its control. And the Kurds say that a significant number of them have now broken free from prison and are, uh, are running, uh, running wild, running free anyway. Well, if somebody commits a crime in a country, um, they're usually held in prison in that country. So they like give those people back to the Syrian government to imprison them or whatever, what's, whatever depending on the crime they've done. Um, you know, so in fact, instead of the Kurds holding on to these prisoners as some sort of bargaining tools, they should give them to the Syrians to um, yeah. try them. Yeah, of course. Alex, thanks uh, for that call. Um, this is a point, isn't it, Patrick? They were holding on to these ISIS prisoners as a bargaining chip. Now some of those chips have broken free. Some have been sent into Iraq, reportedly, into American custody. Uh, Trump's position is he wants countries like Britain, Belgium, Holland, France, and so on, to take their own nationals back, the ISIS terrorists who left our countries and went there. Uh, take them back and try them uh, for crimes. That's a very controversial thing here uh, because, of course, there's no death penalty here. Uh, and people who are guilty of literally sawing off the heads on camera of British journalists and NGO workers and so on, uh, coming back here for a trial, it doesn't appeal to uh, many people. Uh, but, you know, I take the view, this is not the view of RT, I should say, uh, but I take the view that Erdogan and Turkey played a very significant role in the development of this ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Islamist fanatic front. So how could you trust Turkey to keep these people under lock and key? Well, they might, as Alex seemed to be inferring, actually then put them back in the field. Well, this is, this is what's happened with a lot of the FSA fighters. The, you have ISIS among those ranks. You have al-Qaeda among those ranks. They're not clearly, uh, they're not all political uh, opposition or the secular opposition, this mythical so moderate yeah. rebel. I never met one yet. They're, they're, yeah. they're very extremist. Never met a moderate rebel from <laughs> Syria. And uh, very jihadist in sort of their outlook uh, in their, and also in their opposition to Damascus. 
So the, the, the issue of this is the Kurdish have been using this as a bargaining chip to extort U.S. support. Uh, and now they're blaming it on Turkish artillery uh, strikes, saying that, oh, we don't have the manpower to look after these prisoners. But this also plays into Washington's hands, because if, if ISIS is now running amok again uh, in the region, it's only then Trump or Lindsey Graham or someone can turn to uh, the U.S. political body and say, oh, the ISIS problem has not been resolved. We need to redeploy. And don't, don't think that that's not a possibility. The U.S. could very much... Uh, Trump has held pretty firm so far, but I mean that could change, couldn't it? Depending on his other problems. They haven't actually withdrawn all of their uh, special forces from northeastern Syria, despite the announcement. So they've still maintained a foothold there. The, I think the, uh, the if the Kurdish forces are driven south, that will play into the U.S. agenda, which is to secure, keep the oil fields out of Syrian hands and sort of delay this uh, inevitable negotiation that has to happen between Kurdish forces and Damascus and Moscow. This Eventually this is going to happen, uh, hopefully, unless the U.S.'s plan is just to continue uh, instability in that part of the region. ISIS is now appearing uh, in places like Homs. Uh, there are militants, Al-Qaeda militants in Haseka. So to keep Syria, Russia, its allies out of that area because a lot of people believe they could clean that area up very quickly, restore order very quickly, and Erdogan would not fire upon a Syrian Arab army uh, battalion or any soldiers. That's no, not uh, he, he wouldn't. And in fact, he said today that uh, he's ready to talk to uh, President Assad, with whom he's been at war basically all these years now. They, before the war, by the way, they had quite good relations. And it was Turkey's avowed foreign policy to have no quarrels with its neighbors, which be became uh, war with all its neighbors, near war in Iraq, actual war in Syria. Let's take another call from Jared in Pennsylvania. Jared, welcome. Uh, hello, George, and hello, Patrick. Welcome. I want to talk a little bit about this um, Syria situation, because this is... Um, very complicated. Probably most of your callers and everybody else doesn't really know what's going on. But uh, let me go into some detail. Um, we defeated ISIS when, um, with the help of the Iraqi army, along with uh, the Kurdish forces in both Iraq and Syria. I think the Syrian and army and the Russian army and the Iranian irregulars and Hezbollah had quite a hand in that too, you know, Jared. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, I missed, I forgot those. Uh, yes, they played the most biggest part was uh, the Syrian army in conjunction with Russia and Iran who helped push um, ISIS out of um, Syrian-controlled territories. I was yeah. talking more about Iraq. But um, anyway, we defeated ISIS, but... Um, uh, there was still ISIS that existed. There was a protectorate that Turkey had in northern, north, um, western Syria of an occupation that the Turks had, which was called the so-called Free Syrian Army, which is just a rebranding of ISIS. And then you have al-Qaeda in Idlib running an Islamic principality almost, where um, they are um, 
uh, uh, engaging in just massive uh, torture, killings, beheadings, and everything else. Now, um, with the situation with the Kurds, um, my position has been very clear. The U.S. should not have went over there. However, this does not necessarily mean I support Erdogan coming in and occupying Syrian territory, which is a form of imperialism on the basis of the Turks. So uh, the, the Kurds, while I do support them being reintegrated into Syria, they should be granted an autonomous territory that, at least based off what I've seen, that Rojava, or whatever it, I believe it's called, is an autonomous republic, so to speak, within Turkey, I mean Syria, and they have not claimed that they want to split off from uh, Damascus. Okay, Jared, uh, I think we've got that. Uh, Patrick, uh, there are many problems with the uh, rather schematic uh, thesis uh, of Jared. Uh, the first, first of all, uh, northeast Syria is not exclusively Kurdish. Uh, it's not called Rojava, uh, and it cannot be an autonomous Kurdish area without the minorities, Arab minorities, Druze and others who are living there, having their rights uh, protected. Um, before this all started, the Kurdish people had good relations with Damascus, uh, and why won't they? repair those relations. I mean, it seems like screamingly obvious to me. If the SDF now said to the government in Damascus, please send the Syrian army here and help us defend Syria against this Turkish incursion. As you said, that would solve the problem because Erdogan isn't going to fight Syria because if he fights Syria, he's also got to fight Russia and he ain't going to do that. So what's stopping them from taking this step? They were, that step was being taken in 2013, but the emergence of ISIS taking large portion territory in northeastern Syria, that delayed or changed the whole game plan. Syria then, uh, Damascus had pretty much pulled out completely of that area, aside from a few uh, specks on the map. But so then the U.S. moved in to partner with the Kurds, and again... Uh, so the Kurds trusted the, the U.S.? Because they're waving that carrot of an independent state. They're giving them cash, they're giving them status, they're giving them uh, guns and a seat at a, what they believe is a higher table. And the U.S. have come in and done infrastructure projects in that part of the uh, country and build bases and airstrips and highway resurfacing and things like that. So in their eyes, the things were improving with the help of the U.S. But this is only a short-term deal. And when you go into business with America, you got to be ready to cash your chips out before the U.S. does. Mm. And now the U.S., you can see, is temporarily cashing its chips and leaving Kur the Kurds uh, holding the can. This has been were. happening for uh, the best part of a century. You know, the Kurds have been put on the shelf, taken off, put back, and so on, over and uh, over and over again. The uh, domestic backlash against Trump's decision looks from here at least, in media terms, inside the bubble, to be very considerable. Uh, is that playing out in Peoria? I mean, what do the voters think about Donald Trump, as it were, ending one of the interminable Middle East wars? 
The talking point is, if you watch CNN and you watch Fox, that Trump has betrayed this great U.S. ally uh, by, by pulling out of Syria and left them basically exposed to an invading Turkish force. And this is the culmination, in my opinion, of years of propaganda, this, uh, this concept of, quote, the Kurds. In America, they have no idea what the Kurds are. They don't know the difference between the YPG or the PKK or the, uh, the Barzani, Barzani or, uh, Norbil yeah. versus uh, yeah. uh, Menbich. They don't know the difference between that. It's just a term. Lindsey Graham, John McCain and others will sort of seize upon that. The networks will seize upon Pat that. Pat Robinson was calling them Christians. <laughs> when, in fact, they're all Sunni Muslims. And, and we're abandoning the Christians in Syria. And they're not in fact, it was your U.S. allies in these jihadist fronts that were massacring the Christians with Lindsey Graham's support. This is true. An Amnesty International report in 2015 uh, condemned the Kurdish militants for raising villages, burning houses, kidnapping, extortion, forcing children into sol soldier positions, male and female. So they're not the saintly, uh, the militants I'm talking about, the, 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 the YPGs, uh, they're not the saintly uh, revolutionaries that uh, they're often painted on uh, as in the U.S. media. Mm. So the reality is something much different. Here's Sam in New York with a point of view. Sam, go ahead. Hey, George. Good to be back on the air with you. Welcome. So uh, I just want to point out that, uh, yeah, no, the past point. You correctly, you were talking about the fact that sorry, Americans... I'm sorry, Sam, this is a bad line. Uh, we'll, get you, we'll get you back uh, on the line. Meanwhile, let's hear from Derek in Pennsylvania. Go ahead, Derek. Hey, George. Um, I, I'm just wondering, how couldn't the U.S. get out of this area, Syria included? Um, is there a multilateral approach, like going through the U.K. or the U.N., excuse me? Mm. Um, is there a different? Is there a way to get us out of there while still well, uh, keeping uh, the Kurds Patrick, safe? Uh, Patrick will give you uh, his view, but here's mine. And again, it's my own personal one. Uh, the um, territorial integrity of Syria is an absolute totem for me and ought to be uh, for the UN. Nobody has a right to be in Syria except if invited by the legitimate government of Syria, the recognized, sovereign, legitimate government of Syria. So the United States should never have been there and therefore cannot place conditions upon its departure. It can't say we're going to stop breaking international law, but only if this, 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 and this happens. The last thing we need is another foreign legion, uh, or a multilateral approach, as you put it, arriving in Syria. Syria is Syria is Syria. And the only people with a legitimate reason to be there are the Syrian government's forces and its allies, Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. 
that the Syrian government has invited in. What's your point on that, Patrick? You just have to go back to the Pentagon document in 2012 that America was well aware uh, that uh, ISIS could emerge, the Islamic State, and form an Islamic principality. But they looked at that in favorable terms, that this would be a way to break up what they thought was a, a Shiite uh, crescent stretching from, uh, from the Levant, from Lebanon, all the way to Iran. They also looked at a possible Kurdish state as being something that would achieve uh, to break that up, break up that expansion of Shiism, as, as Washington uh, refers to it. And this is something that Israel would, would naturally uh, want to break up as well. Hence, uh, the Israeli support of uh, Kurdish, uh, a Kurdish autonomous state. They absolutely want that. Um, so there's, there's that issue. In well, Israel wants to balkanize the area into ethnic states because that's a justification for its own ethnic state. That's right. And they would like to see the Middle East composed not of 23 countries, but hundreds of emirates and principalities, Druze emirates, Sunni, Shia. They'd like a jigsaw uh, puzzle, wouldn't they? The, the, the great uh, Russian revolutionary and anarchist, uh, Mikhail um, Bakunin, he said, beware of the small states. And David Hurst wrote a book uh, with that title, uh, uh, great title. Ten years great ago. Title. Great title. Great, great title. So it was referring to Lebanon, but it could very easily be referring to yeah. all of these other states yeah, exactly. that we see appearing. But my last thing I'll say is, how do you solve this problem? Your, mm. your caller uh, answered. If you're really serious about defeating terrorism, then it needs to be a, a, a full, unified, solidarity approach. Russia, the United States, Turkey, Syria, all of their allies. If ISIS is truly the enemy, of the world that needs to be snuffed out and wiped out, then those um, U.S. has to come together mm. with Russia and Syria. Mm. You can't have separate agendas. You know, that, you know that Boris Johnson once wrote exactly that in a column in the Daily Telegraph? <laughs> but by the time he became foreign minister and then prime minister, he'd completely forgotten he'd ever written, uh, written it. Here's Sam back in uh, New York. Sam, go ahead. Uh, I hope the signal's a lot better now, George. A little bit better. Go ahead. Uh, well, just to the point of Patrick's uh, point about uh, the U.S. being aware of ISIS. Yeah. Uh, we have on audio John Kerry who said, we watched ISIS grow in the hopes it would weaken the Syrian government. So it wasn't like we didn't use ISIS to our own advantage because it played a, a role. I mean, we sure. never learned from the 70s when we armed the Mujahideen. Sure. But, uh, I mean, so just going to this point, uh, let's rewind the clock to 2015. When Russia steps in to help the Syrian government defeat ISIS, then the U.S. starts using the SDF, the Kurds, because well, we, we tried, the CIA tried to find moderate rebels, but even they were like, yeah, we're, we're drawing a blank here, because most of them are linked with uh, al-Qaeda groups. And you can see the map from 2015 to 2016. It was an actual race, if you started from the middle of Syria, going to the Iraqi side of the border, of who's going to defeat ISIS uh, quicker and make it to the border. Now, why is that important is because the U.S. didn't want the Syrian government to make it to the, uh, to the Iraqi border because they don't want that, as Patrick uh, said, that quote-unquote uh, Shiite crescent road. They wanted to block off the roads that would, you know, from Iran, Syria, uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, etc. So while they were doing that on the north with the Kurds, the Kurds were also themselves um, more or less ethnically pushing out people who live there who are predominantly Arab or Druze or whatever yeah, happens. I'm sorry to say that's true. That's what happened. Sorry yeah, to burst so, the bubble of all the YPG fans out there, but that's exactly what happened. 
they were ethnically exactly. cleansing now, Arabs from that area. Correct. And then what happened, if you look at a map right now, you would see that the, uh, the, the SDF, predominantly Kurds, they control one-fourth of Syria. They don't even make up a fourth of the population. That's an absurd notion. Mm. And it was mainly because the U.S. was using them to, A, block a road, and B, to, to hold the oil and the, uh, the wheat as well. There's fertile uh, ground in Derazor that they, they're holding you know, as leverage. Now, moving forward to 2016, Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, there, were, uh, there was the force of the YPG in Afrin that was working with the Syrian government and the Russian government. And uh, they, the right next door was uh, the Turkish incursion of Jarablus. Now, what happened was the Kurds, the, the Turks kept telling the, um, the, the Kurds, hey, we're going to come and take Afrin if you don't disarm. And they said repeatedly, Syrian government of Russia said, let us come in. We'll, you know, more or less be the federal government. You could have some local autonomy. And they said, no, 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 because right over past Jarabalus mm. were where the Americans were uh, arming the Kurds and the SDF. And they said, no, no, the Americans will come get, uh, protect us. They didn't learn. They, uh, sure enough, they came in. Now, what is uh, dangerous, and this is what Patrick pointed out, and even Robert Fisk pointed out, that these militias that Turkey puts into these areas, they're pretty much, as, as Robert Fitz said, ISIS who just shaved their beard. They have implemented institutionalized uh, you know, Sharia law. And even more terrifying is, you can see this on Turkish state media, is they teach the children in Syria, in the areas they're controlling. They don't teach them in Arabic, they teach them in Turkish. And the children are literally like, in, you know, in America we say Pledge of Allegiance. They're told, you know, oh, Erdogan, you're so great, you're so benevolent. And that's a form of, uh, of Turkey wanting to just carve a large portion of Syria so they can annex it later. Now, Quite, no, Sam, uh, have... Sam, we're running out of time. Uh, thanks for that erudition. I'm grateful uh, to you for it. I'm glad we got you back. Uh, Sam's on to something, uh, isn't he? Uh, the, the, the Turks don't plan on this being any kind of temporary, uh, you know, kerfuffle. The, they're not there to fight the YPG for six weeks or ten weeks and then withdraw. Uh, they clearly plan to seize this part of Syria. They have to know that Syria cannot accept that, that if Syria does not accept it, uh, Russia will not accept it. President Putin said uh, this very day uh, that the territorial integrity of all of Syria is the absolutely legal, legitimate demand of the Syrian government, and we are the Syrian government's allies. So uh, Russia is clearly signaling that they won't accept this. So what, the, what are the possibilities of actual problems between the Turks, the Syrians, and the Russians on this? Long term, there's, there's already going to be problems between uh, Damascus and Turkey for many, many years to come as a result of what's, what's unfolded and what's unfolding now. And Turkey is going so far as to transform the educational institutions in those areas. Edge of allegiance. They're running power lines into Jarbalus. Cell phone mm -hmm. coverage is from Turkish providers. They're providing power, electricity, and so forth. Uh, and so, and the police as well uh, have Turkish. In, in, it's in Jarbalus with the Turkish flag with Erdogan's picture in the police station. So there's there's clearly they're looking at them as sort of benefactors, sponsors. Turkey is our benefactor. So it's it, it's. Again, it's separating these people from Damascus. 
And the end game is to make Syria smaller, make it weaker, compromise. And Qatar, yeah, I mean, to steal their oil. And, and not only that, the, the biggest fear of the United States and its allies, Britain as well, would be for Syria to Damascus and Baghdad to have good relations mm. and to jointly have management of their own shared border, mm. because that would end any possibility. If you have the Hashid, you have uh, the Iraqi army working with the Syrian Arab army mm. uh, in a joint collective security pact with Iran, with Lebanon. You see what was achieved between Lebanon and Syria. They flushed ISIS out of the Lebanese border areas mm. work by working together mm. with Hezbollah. The West looks at that and this is their biggest fear that there's going to be cooperation between these states that they've worked so hard to divide it breaks my heart to uh, remind you um, that the Ba'ath party which ruled in both Syria and Iraq could have united their two countries half a century ago but couldn't even unite their own party never mind their two countries Patrick Henningson 21st century war thanks very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Scousa Lar says on the Twitter, I never thought I'd see the day when John McDonnell would be cozying up with Alistair Campbell, fawning over Tony Blair. The man should be ashamed of himself. He's turned into another Neil Kinnock. He's really let me down. I used to love him. Well, don't say I didn't warn you, Scousar. I hope to see you at the Linear Hotel on Saturday. Gray Curtis says, just one more in a line of corrupt politicians. It's hard to find a truthful one. The next election will be impossible to call, but it will be very damaging. But hey, if they don't like the results, they'll just ignore it. It's a new version of democracy. And Anthony Paulson says, George Galloway said he remembered young Trotskyist Andy Marr handing out Trotskyist pamphlets to railway workers. Indeed, I do for foreign viewers and listeners. Andrew Marr is now the ultra-establishment face of the BBC's current affairs. But I'm, I've been around so long, I remember him when he was a Trotskyite. Uh, now, uh, let me, I can't actually make sense of that one. So Paul Thomason says, Mr. Galloway, you seem like a communist. What do you say to an accusation of this kind. Here's what I say, Paul. I am not now, nor have I ever been, a communist. Uh, not that it would be any of your business if I was, but I am not. I have never been, and I never will be, for lots of reasons, the most important of which is I'm a religious believer, and therefore cannot be a communist. However, you, Mr. McCarthy, should keep on listening because if you listen, you'll learn that many people who are communists are talking sense, whilst people who call themselves anti-communists are talking the opposite. So keep on listening and you will begin to understand that the world is not quite uh, best viewed through the prism you look at things. Now I like to think we've played our part in casting a light on the murky world of Jeffrey Epstein and his bosom buddies, the men I'm talking about, not the hapless poor young women, children actually, that were ensnared by him and his filthy friends, some of them in very high places indeed. 
there were few of his friends in a higher place than Prince Andrew, uh, son of Her Majesty the Queen. I'm sorry to have to return to this subject. I don't want to hurt any royal feelings, but we simply cannot have unexplained and unadjudicated allegations as serious as those now facing Prince Andrew. Uh, we can't allow our state to become one in which even members of the royal family can behave as they like beyond the law, beyond journalism, beyond proper criticism and accountability. Now we've played our part, but the person who in my view has played the greatest part in exposing this uh, foul cesspit of a, of a life uh, that was Jeffrey Epstein is the wonderful Whitney Webb, who is, as far as I know, on the line from Chile. Uh, if we can connect with Whitney, I'd like to talk to her now. Is that possible, Chris? Whitney? Hello, good evening, George. How wonderful to talk to you again. I did say that we would continue to follow this story, and you can't continue to follow it without uh, reference to you and Mint Press, uh, for whom you are the senior investigative journalist. So I'm grateful to you for reconnecting with us. Why don't you start by bringing us up to date uh, on where the Epstein case now lies, or rather doesn't lie, and where Ghislaine Maxwell is. Well, unfortunately, I can't tell you where Ghislaine Maxwell is. Some people have speculated that she is with John Luke Burnell, another co-conspirator in the case who is, who is alleged to be in Brazil currently. Um, as far as the FBI, the FBI probe goes, um, the only uh, recent news I've seen is that they are expanding their probe um, into Prince Andrew after it was alleged that the FBI was covering up his involvement. Um, with Jeffrey Epstein. So, um, and they, they claim that they are talking to um, other accusers who have information about Prince Andrew's role um, um, in this affair. Of course, to date, the only uh, accuser who was publicly accused um, Prince Andrew of sleeping with a minor is Virginia Roberts, but the FBI sort of hinted that there were more. And I will be having a report coming out on, on uh, tomorrow, on Monday, uh, that has a lot of, um, you know, uh, quite suggestive information from a very heavily censored, uh, censored uh, news article actually from the UK that was published in January 2001 that strongly suggests that Prince Andrew um, was was receiving these quote unquote massages uh, from these underage girls uh, a year before he even met Virginia Roberts. Because in this article, this was published in January 2001, um, as far as, as um, from the information we have from uh, Virginia Roberts, she said that she was um, put, uh, forced to, to have um, uh, sex with, with Prince Andrew in March 2001. So this was published two months prior, and it says that um, citing people close to the royal family and also personal friends of Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein, that Prince Andrew, when he would travel with Ghislaine Maxwell and Epstein, um, after February of 2000, would bring with him his own massage table and had a young girl personally massaging him on a regular basis uh, during this vacation. And actually, this article I've been trying to find 
since I started my investigation of this um, uh, in around July and I wasn't able to find it, it's been scrubbed from the internet completely. Um, but I have a copy that I'll, I'll be including in my report that has um, a lot of other information beyond just that, not just on the Prince Andrew Epstein relationship, but also talks about the Bill Gates relationship um, with Jeffrey Epstein that of course, um, Bill Gates was recently just a few days ago saying that he had only met Epstein for the first time in 2013. I believe it was just two days ago, the New York Times revealed pictures of them, uh, Epstein and, and Bill Gates together in 2011. But this article from 2001 says that Epstein made millions of dollars uh, because of his business links with Bill Gates, uh, apparently in the 1990s. So um, there's definitely more coming out um, than a lot of you know Epstein's powerful uh, friends would like. Well, uh, it's always the case that the cover-up is even worse than the crime. Uh, and these cover-ups are now beginning to slip, aren't they? Because uh, if uh, Bill Gates never met Jeffrey Epstein before 2013, how can there be uh, pictures of him uh, with uh, Epstein earlier than that? And how can it have been possible for Epstein to make millions of dollars making deals with Gates without ever having met him. I suppose in the age of the internet, it is uh, possible, but highly unlikely. Uh, equally, I don't know if you're aware, uh, there was ribald laughter throughout the land here in Britain when uh, Prince Andrew sought to explain his last meeting uh, with Jeff Jeffrey Epstein, and a picture of that had emerged he had flown all the way to the United States to tell Mr. Epstein that their friendship was over. Uh, and there was laughter throughout the land. Indeed, even the corgis in Buckingham Palace were laughing at the implausibility of that. So all these people are trying to hide their relations with Epstein, aren't they? Yeah, oh, oh, that's definitely true. And even people like Leslie Wexner, who was the closest to Epstein for decades, um, ha has done the same thing, even though he was, you know, by all indications, one of the most involved people in this. And, you know, a lot of people are familiar with, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell's role, for example, but Wexner was just as, uh, just as key a player as she was. But he's been able to, to use the press um, in, in the U.S. to basically successfully distance himself uh, from the case. And I think, you know, um, as you mentioned about the cover-up often being worse than, than the crime, well, um, if you have a very compliant media, even if the cover-up is bad, um, you know, they, they can still get away with it. It but can what sometimes we're seeing uh, is, oh. succeed, yeah. Tell us about this right. uh, Wexner, Whitney, because uh, on this side of the Atlantic, he's not a well-known figure, but he's very significant in the U.S. Tell us about him, will you? Right. So he is, he's a billionaire from Ohio. He's best known for his uh, clothing company, The Limited, which now also includes uh, Victoria's Secret, Bath and Body Works, Abercrombie and Fitch, and several other stores that are well known in, in American malls, at least. Um, but yeah, Leslie Wexner also, is... Oh. Yeah. Right. So um, Leslie Wexner is um, the person that um, hired Jeffrey Epstein in 1985 as a financial advisor, eventually giving him power of attorney over his affairs. And when a scrutiny of Epstein's finances began uh, at, uh, most intensely after his arrest in, in July, it became uh, uh, clear that his wealth was largely an illusion and that his only known client of his uh, you know, billionaire consulting firm and, and hedge fund was Wexner, meaning that the vast majority of money that we know about anyway that Epstein obtained came from Leslie Wexner. 
though um, I'll be doing another series coming up about um, Epstein and, and Wexner using real estate to launder money um, and other things like that. But they were involved in a lot of um, other shady uh, financial activity as well. For example, um, it was Epstein and Wexner together who um, negotiated the relocation of Southern Air Transport, which is a well-known CIA front company that was involved in Iran-Contra. Uh, smuggling drugs and Contras from Central America to the U.S. and back again. Um, they, uh, well after that scandal in 1995, had that air, uh, airline relocate from Miami, Florida to Columbus, Ohio, where Wexner's business empire is based, to have him run cargo for, for to have that airline run cargo for his company, The Limited. And this was so concerning uh, to people in Ohio's government, that they were afraid that Wexner and Epstein, well, they alleged actually that Wexner and Epstein were working or smuggling something uh, from Hong Kong to Columbus, which was the route this airline was taking, and that they were doing that um, in connection with the CIA. Um, and this is also because the other main figures that helped negotiate Southern Air Transport's relocation were major players in the Iran-Contra scandal, including Alan Fears, who was actually um, the CIA's, uh, uh, he played a major role he, uh, uh, in the CIA's part of Iran-Contra, I forget his exact position. But he was one of the people actually charged in connection with Iran-Contra and then later pardoned. So, so it, it, you know, the Wexner-Epstein relationship is very suspect and hasn't gotten very, really any push uh, uh, media scrutiny at all. And this is all, uh, you know, public record. If you go in the archives of the newspapers in, of Columbus, Ohio, all of this about Southern Air Transport uh, in, in its CIA role, too, is, is very well documented. And you would think that this would have gotten some sort of coverage in the U.S., but it hasn't. And is Wexner involved in politics in any way? Does he fund uh, any political outfits, candidates? Causes. Well, for a long time, he was a, a major Republican donor, um, and he was also very involved um, in, in funding uh, neoconservative candidates, for example. And he was also, um, uh, he's, through his Wexner Foundation, he was funding uh, political operatives that were um, drafting policy papers for politicians in both the U.S. and in Israel, specifically about um, how to manage uh, public perception of the Iraq war post-invasion uh, after 2003. What is the state of uh, investigation on the Israel connection? Well, um, so recently there was um, a, a statement made by a, a former um, operative in Israeli military intelligence that uh, Robert Maxwell um, had recruited um, Jeffrey Epstein for Israeli military intelligence in the mid-80s um, and had been approved by the, uh, the, his higher-ups. Um, by, by people high up in Israeli military intelligence. And interestingly enough, at that time, uh, where this is alleged to have occurred, the head of Israeli military intelligence was Ehud Barak, who later became prime minister and who we know now had a very, very close relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. He often stayed uh, in Epstein's uh, mansion in New York, didn't he? Yes, and not only did he stay there, he also stayed in this apartment complex where Epstein is alleged to have kept underage girls, which has still not been raided and is owned by Epstein's brother, Mark Epstein, who um, helped Epstein run this uh, sort of underground clandestine real estate empire that was being used for money laundering. How extraordinary. So if Epstein himself was not a billionaire, in other words, it was all Wexner's money, what did all these top people see in Jeffrey Epstein. It has to be the sex, doesn't it? You know, it, it could be a lot of different things. I personally think that Epstein um, 
was, was serving multiple roles for intelligence and potentially different uh, intelligence agencies of different countries. We have the element of his sexual blackmail operation, which of course now is the best known. But um, I think also he was, he was definitely laundering money on a massive scale um, for um, organized crime and also most likely intelligence. I'll be reporting on this in an, in an upcoming series. Um, and a lot of it had in involvement with the Bronfman family as well. Um, one of the Bronfman family trusts is a is one of the um, entities that keeps coming up with the passing around of these properties for zero dollar sales and a lot of really other odd activity um, that was going on in the 1990s. Tell so us, I again, think he was definitely. Uh, yeah, again, Whitney, uh, forgive us on this side of the pond. Who are the Bronfman family, uh, Bronfman family and, uh, and right. what, what is their importance? Um, well, they are, um, uh, Edgar Bronfman is, is, was head of the World Jewish Congress, um, which is um, this, um, you know, sort of a global lobby group that's, that's quite well known. But he is, um, you know, they, they're the, the family that um, are the owner of Seagram's Liquor, and they have a very longstanding uh, ties to organized crime going back to the 1920s. And they have a very close relationship with Wexner as well. Charles Bronfman, uh, Edgar Bronfman's brother, for example, founded the Mega Group. Um, which is this controversial group of donors. Um, he co-founded that with Wexner. And also, also Charles Bronfman was a business partner at, what, uh, at one point of Robert Maxwell. Um, and they, of course, the Bronfmans have um, a long history of, of you know, um, funding, uh, donating to politicians in both the U.S. and Israel, and are, are very involved in, in both countries and are actually oligarchs, not only in North America, but also in Israel as well, owning Israel's largest supermarket chain, for example. They were recently, uh, just until recently, the major controlling shareholder in one of Israel's largest banks. So no, they're another uh, one of these sort of um, oligarchs that span, you know, uh, both countries. Yeah, uh, I'm in no doubt that uh, Robert Maxwell was an asset of Israeli intelligence. Indeed, I accused him of so being in Parliament shortly before he either jumped or was pushed off the back of his yacht. And that yacht was called the Lady Ghislaine. Uh, called after his favorite daughter. Other daughters were available. Uh, but he called after Lady Ghislaine uh, because mm -hmm. she was the daughter most like him. Uh, she was most like him facially, physically, uh, but also mm -hmm. in terms of character. Uh, and uh, I don't know where she is, if she's in Brazil, uh, if she's uh, on the Copacabana or she's in Israel. Uh, it would not surprise me at all if she was also like him in being an asset of Israeli intelligence. Does your investigation so far indicate that? Well, um, I, I w I'm certainly inclined to think so, and I would say I, w I would like to reference back to this article um, that I um, my report on it will be coming out next week in relation to Prince Andrew. So well, long before the nature of this operation was actually known, uh, this article talks about how Ghislaine reached out and, and sort of developed this relationship with, with Prince Andrew that people around them, people that knew Maxwell and also knew Prince Andrew, found to be uh, manipulative, and the word premeditated frequently came up. Um, in this article in relation to this relationship and that it was all being done for Epstein, which is what um, a person 
uh, one of these people close to these um, these three people had had said that it was all being done for Epstein. We know now that you know this this entrapment with these underage girls it was a way of of soliciting blackmail and ultimately you know uh, power and, and influence over these powerful individuals. And of course, having someone um, you know in the royal family in in, in your pocket is, is would be considered quite an asset by someone um, you know conducting this type of operation. Would, uh, it's all going to make a great movie or a Netflix series one day. <laughs> we should write. It, Whitney. Uh, thanks very much for that update. And everyone needs to follow Mint Press News. And your work on this uh, continues. When's your next article? Monday, did you say? Tomorrow? Yeah, it comes out tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Okay, we look forward to it with bated breath. I'm sure some of the powerful are doing so also. The, the, the wonderful Whitney Webb in Chile for the mother of all talk shows. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, uh, on this uh, day is a feature we started a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I found it quite uh, useful, uh, not least because it shows that nothing is new under the sun, that everything changes, but everything remains the same. And a thread, a chain, uh, a river of blood connects the past to the present. And this week, my clever friends have dug out some of the salient on-this-day facts. And hey, it buttresses uh, the point I've just made virtually perfectly. On this day in 1994, peace in the north of Ireland began to break out as the loyalist paramilitary groups announced a ceasefire in Belfast. It came seven weeks after the IRA declared a similar truce. Following this, British officials met with Sinn Féin representatives for formal talks. However, the truce broke down two weeks later, sorry, two years later, when the IRA bombed London's Docklands. Following another IRA truce, the Good Friday Agreement was signed in May of 1998. Two decades earlier, on this day in 1971, the British Army began to systematically blow up minor roads between the Republic of Ireland and the North to stop gun running. Days later, locals had repaired the roads, and it was business as usual. At the peak of the troubles, as they were called, although Ireland has always experienced for centuries troubles from Britain, there were almost 12,000 British soldiers in the North of Ireland, which for foreign listeners and viewers, I remind you, is just six counties in dimension. In 1992, the Tory government announced the, that 31,000 miners' jobs would go with the closure of 31 of the 50 remaining deep mines. At its peak in the Second World War, the mining industry employed over a million men in almost a thousand pits. In 1996, in the wake of the Dunblane massacre this week, where the gunman Thomas Hamilton shot dead 16 children and a teacher, handguns were banned in the UK. Incidentally, the tennis player Andrew Murray, Andy Murray, was a pupil there that day at Dunblame Primary School and was due to go into the library where the massacre took place.
And in this week, in 1968, on October 16, at the Olympic Stadium in Mexico City, black American athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos, whom I had the privilege of meeting in Bradford eight years ago or so, each raised a black gloved fist on the podium during the playing of the Star Spangled Banner. Smith had won gold in the 200 meters, Carlos the bronze coming in third. The second placed man, the Australian sprinter Peter Norman, wore a badge in support of the two men. Good for him, Peter Norman also should be remembered in that story. Now, I need some calls. Where, where's my numbers? I need calls. I'm not getting enough calls. The British number, 0207-798-2255. What do you think about this Kurdish question? What do you think about the Epstein affair? And what do you think about what I've had to say, and I'm going to say now, about the shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, whom the Sunday Times reports today is now effectively in command of the Labour Party. Having mounted a palace coup, banishing Carrie Murphy, the chief of staff, and now with his hands metaphorically, at least I hope metaphorically, around the throat of the director of communications and strategy, Seamus Milne. According to the Sunday Times and according to my own investigations, and I have reported this to you obliquely, many times, sometimes not so obliquely. John McDonnell has mounted a coup against Jeremy Corbyn, and Jeremy Corbyn is now effectively a hostage. I'd like to see him break free. I think he could break free. I hope he does break free. But who is John McDonnell? Well, I have known him for almost 40 years. When I first knew him, he was a deeply embedded Trotskyite of the organized variety. Not some fluffy ultra-left, not some Andrew Marr handing out pamphlets. Deep, deeply embedded Trotskyite with some very dodgy Trotskyite organizations indeed. Very extreme. If someone had told you that the former candidate for the priesthood, John McDonnell, was an IRA gun runner, you certainly wouldn't have doubted them. I'm not saying that he was, but he was extremely close uh, to the cause of Irish Republicanism, as I was myself. John McDonnell was way, 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 way to the far left of me. Somebody asked me earlier if I was a communist. I said no. Well, John McDonnell very definitely was a communist of the Trotskyite variety. And now, he is giggling and laughing and grinning and fawning at the feet of Tony Blair's Goebbels. For that's what Alistair Campbell of GQ magazine is and was. Alistair Campbell lied this country into a disastrous war which cost the lives of a million people and counting, which spawned ISIS and Al-Qaeda, about which we talked earlier, and sent them cascading around the world. I'm actually not interested in what Alistair Campbell has to say, unless he's saying it from the dock in The Hague, facing a war crimes tribunal. Because that's where he 
deserves to be. And that's where John McDonnell in 2013 said on tape with the artist Taxi Driver, he should be. He should be arrested, said John McDonnell. He should be on trial in The Hague for war crimes, said John McDonnell in 2013. But Alistair Campbell's first question to John McDonnell was, and I quote, is Tony Blair a war criminal? And John McDonnell's first answer was, no, no, no. So what happened, John? When did Tony Blair cease to be a war criminal? How can someone who invaded on a pack of lies a sovereign country, a member of the United States, killed a million people, spawned extremism all over the world, all on a pack of lies. How could that not be a war criminal? And the man that you were grinning at, the man that you said was forgiven and should come back, and whose expulsion from the Labour Party had been some ghastly, terrible mistake that should never have happened. What happened to you, John McDonnell? What have they offered you, John McDonnell? Or what have they got on you, John McDonnell? Did somebody have a quiet word? Show you your file? What happened to you, John McDonnell? Why have you taken hostage our friend, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party? and will release him only on the terms that he breaks the Labour Party's conference decision, breaks the Labour Party's policy enunciated by the leader over and over again that Britain needs a general election now. Why have you done this, John McDonnell? On whose behalf have you done this, John McDonnell, Ramsay McDonnell? Betrayer of everything you once stood for. It's the mother of all talk shows, all right.